Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, um, open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, we will dig in. Um, it says, verse 1, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. If you remember last week, I read that at the end of the last chapter because it's kind of a hinge verse. It sets up this next section, and it also kind of concluded the last section of what's going on in 2 Samuel. Uh, it, it, so that segue, uh, it says there was a long war between the house of Saul. We know from other passages the war was about seven years civil war in Israel, where the north is fighting the south. Um, the author sees this, though, as a, a theme through the entire rise of David is how this kind of happens. And then you get this kind of thing that uh, people read over when they do their Bible study. All the, I'll just read it. The sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, which means faithful, by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab, which means like his father, is by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, which means my father is peace. The son of Makkah, the, the daughter of Talmal, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, my lord is Jehovah. The son of Haggith. The fifth, Shepathah. I'm supposed to just say it with confidence. Shephathiah. We're just going to call that person Shep, which means judged as Jehovah, the son of Abital. And then the sixth is Ithream, a prophet to the people by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. In ancient writings, whenever they told the narratives of a king, they would tell the king's family line, or you'd get this kind of lineage. This is where people get excited when we get to Chronicles. And they think, let's put all of these little genealogies together and see the whole thing. So you get these chapters and chapters genealogies. The Jews got pretty into this too, because over the history of the Jewish people, they started making these massive genealogies because they'd start to see how God worked through the genealogies. All the way up to where Matthew leads off his gospel in chapter one with, with a one chapter genealogy that shows us how it goes from David right to Joseph, son of David, right to Jesus. So these genealogies become a part of Jewish history. And I just, for me, that's one of those seeds that's kind of neat. In this part, we have a very, uh, this is not a good thing. And that's part of the histories. This is why we read the histories properly. The histories are not God's will and God's word necessarily in that they show us what happened, but they show us the sins right alongside with the successes. We're supposed to know it's a sin because we've read Deuteronomy and God's defined multiple wives is not a good thing. Um, in Genesis 2:24, man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. They shall be one flesh. That doesn't mean a man and then multiple wives shall cleave to each other and become one flesh. So God's established that early. Jesus, when asked about that kind of relationship or divorce, he goes right to that Genesis verse and talks about it. Um, Deuteronomy 17:17, 17, 17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, the king. Uh, that his heart turn away from away, neither shall he greatly multiply himself over silver and gold. God's commanded that the king should not do this thing, 
that here we see David doing it. So then people argue, well, David had multiple wives. He had six wives, actually. During, so it's a seven-year war, but this period that's defined with the wives is actually six years where he's having kids with these wives because the first year he doesn't have any from what we know. And then there are six sons that are named of the six wives over six years, giving us a six-six-six situation, if you didn't pick that up. It's not a good thing when David does what God said not to do. But I think it's interesting and kind of a testament to these histories that we don't get any commentary on it. Like we're supposed to just know that this is not okay or that it's wrong. Um, Gesher, another thing to notice in there, and, and we'll go through each one. Uh, Ma'aka, the daughter of Talmai, this king of Gesher. The way that's worded is, is that Gesher is not part of Israel. So David started marrying women because they were political alliances. They were a way to bind his house with the house of another nation. So instead of driving those people out of Israel, he's actually making alliances with them. Deuteronomy 7.3, another command for the king. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter or their son or take their daughter for your, for your son. David's not supposed to be marrying people outside of Israel either. So he's doing polygamy, which he shouldn't be doing. He's marrying outside of people that are following the Lord, which he shouldn't do. There are consequences to these actions that we don't get until we just keep reading through the history. So for our own commentary, and again, for those of you that are wrestling with the issue of polygamy right now, Amon was a rapist, and then he got murdered. Chiliab, Shephthah, and Ithraim are so unnotable uh, that they don't even get mentions beyond the, 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 the uh, uh, genealogy. Adonijah's an and a serper. He tries to take the throne from David, and he's a rapist. And then Absalom is a murderer, and he tried to take the throne from David. None of these kids were a blessing to David. Like, so this polygamy did not result in fruit in David's life. It didn't make for a nice, healthy, happy family. It made for a family where they're happy to kill each other and rape each other and do nasty things. So that kind of competition is one of the natural consequences of this. So God's going to still use David. We'll also see that. It's not, he's not using David because he approves of polygamy. He's using David because he's got a plan for the history of the world. And so he overlooked some of these things, yet the consequences, the natural outcomes are still there. So at least for us, that's, we can talk about that more afterwards, I guess, and how that plays out. Um, but as, in essence, like there's these things where people don't live under God's law, and then they wonder why their lives are a mess. And their lives are a mess because God's law isn't just a spiritually good thing. There's also natural consequences to breaking it. And so some of those natural consequences are going to plague David, and that seed gets planted in those verses. Then we get this story of Abner and what happens with Abner. Verse 6. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Um, now we get to clearly see that Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was not in charge. Abner's in charge. And, the, and it's not Ishbosheth strengthening his hold, it's Abner strengthening his hold. Abner is not distracted by going after David. So you wonder how many years Abner sat under Saul going, why are you chasing David so much? Abner just doesn't do that. He goes after the Philistines. And we saw in the last chapter that city by city, he's retaking land from the Philistines. And then you get to verse 7. Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Why are you having sex with my father's concubine? The histories don't tell us if Abner was actually doing this or not. We have no idea. But Abner gets really upset. Verse 8. 
Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? So the way he's phrasing that, that this woman, it's entirely derogatory. And you could read this as like he's just kind of putting down women here, but he's really going after Ishbosheth. How dare you accuse me of this? And it doesn't say if he is actually doing it or not. So we don't know if this anger is like when you call somebody out on their sin, they get really angry with you, that kind of anger. Or if it's you call out an innocent person with something they didn't do and they get angry. All we know is he's very angry. That's what it says. But we don't know if it's because he's innocent and upset or that he's guilty and he got called out. Either way, may God do so to Abner. He makes a vow. May God do so to Abner, talking about himself in the third person. And more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba, all of it, from north to south. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So Ishbosheth accuses Abner of having sex with a concubine. The reason this is such a big deal is for a new king to take the harem of the old king in the Middle East was seen as that nobody else can challenge his authority. No one else is there to protect those women. So this would be something that kings would do. They would take women from other households. And yes, this is absolutely treating women like property. And that's absolutely what's going on in this world. And to see that Israel is acting like this isn't to advocate for it. It's to show us that Israel isn't quite where God told them to be in the law. They shouldn't be doing this. So you get a strong character like Abner. He was Saul's uncle. He was his battle leader. Whether or not this is a false accusation, it's the last straw for Abner. And so not only are you accusing me of this, but then verse 9, I'm going to do for David exactly what the Lord swore to him. This again shows us all of Israel knew that David had been promised the kingship. Like this had been pronounced. Saul himself said it in front of the armies. It is not an unknown thing. So up to this point, Abner's been resisting what he knew the Lord had already promised. So this is kind of an interesting shift for Abner. He's switching sides. He's going to switch teams. Ishbosheth can't do anything about it because he fears him in verse 11. There's a fear of Abner. This guy's a, a strong character. And if you cross him, that could not go well. So joining David then is going to be an image of somebody who, like, we always call this the church of the disgruntled. You're not happy with your church, so you leave out of anger. This is the last straw. I'm done going here. And then you go to some other church, but all you're bringing with you is, your, is you, right? You just took a disgruntled person out of this church and you put a disgruntled person in the new church. And sometimes we leave churches because they're not doing what the Word of God says they should do. Sometimes we leave churches because the Holy Spirit's calling us to go here instead of there. That happens all the time. For Abner, he's leaving Ishbosheth out of pure rage. He does a rage quit. And he's just done. He's out of here, and he's leaving for another place. That's not the best reason to switch sides, um, and it's not the right reason to go. He should be joining David because he's going to submit to what God's already said is going to happen with David. He should be joining David because he loves and respects David, not because he's angry with Ishbosheth, right? So just something for us to be aware of. That, that um, psychology is still with us today. Verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers. 
So what he does here is, what's cool is David doesn't have to establish himself as king. He never has to push himself into leadership in the same way that Jesus never pushes himself into our lives. There's an invitation. But Abner does all this work for David, and God just uses it to elevate David to the kingship. Abner sent messengers out on, beha on behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. So David's understandably suspicious of this message that comes to his doorstep, right? The battle leader that's been chasing him for years all of a sudden wants to be his pal. Um, and David said, you know, he's open, good, I'll make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michal, Michal, Michael, who I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of Philistines. This is back in 1 Samuel 18. Saul says, you can have my daughter for your wife, but I need you to go kill a bunch of Philistines and bring back proof. So David is humble here. He says 100 foreskins. In reality, he takes 200. Like he over-delivers he over on this, a little enthusiastic. So testing Abner in this is the same thing that Abner just got accused of. The fact that David doesn't have the power to claim a wife that was his says something about the divided kingdom. So this image of, of um, Michal coming back into his household is actually kind of a powerful image that the nation's going to unite. So this is a symbolic thing. Here's David's problem. At the beginning of the chapter, we see that he's got all these wives. He sees wives as property and political tools, not unlike any of the pagan kingdoms. around. Like This is not unique to Israel or the Bible. This is just how kings at this time viewed women. And this is also part of David's downfall. It's going to be something that he struggles with for his whole kingship. So it's not a, a good thing, but the way he's using this woman as a political tool, um, again, the commentary from the histories, we don't get to see the commentary. And this is where rabbis would sit around and they'd ask their students, what do you think of David asking for Macaw? Was that good or was it not? And the histories create all these case studies where the rabbi could ask and teach with these kind of questions. Well, how did that work? And what the... What they're trying to do is teach the, the young rabbinical students to learn the law and apply the law with these case studies. So this happens through Chronicles, through Kings, through Samuel. As we get these situations where there's no commentary in the text, you actually have to know Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus. You have to know the law in order to have a conversation about is this right or is this wrong? Should David be doing this or not? So it's just kind of, I don't know, I just think that's kind of neat. So this isn't for romance. It's not that David's in love with her and he misses her. In fact, she's been remarried. We'll see that here in a second. It's interesting in that passage, too, that Abner makes the offer, but David, notice, sends the messengers not back to Abner. He sends them to Ishbosheth. I think this is really interesting because David doesn't do this whole middleman thing. You know, he goes straight to Ishbosheth because if Ishbosheth makes that happen, the civil war is over. If Abner makes it happen, then he, he might still have battle with Ishbosheth to deal with. Right? This is really wise of David, and he's playing, it's a political game that he's playing, and there's people at stake here, but he's also playing a good political game. Diplomatically, if Ishbosheth sends her, then this war is over, and there's this kind of a submission there. Verse 15 And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Palti, which means God delivers, the son of Laish, having no general. 
Ishbosheth is like, I yeah, let's end this war because he doesn't have a battle commander anymore. So he knows where he's at. God reserves this kind of judgment here and we, we keep moving forward. Verse 16, then her husband went along with her to Baruam, weeping behind her. So Abner said, said to him, go return, and he returned. 16's a tough sentence. Like this whole thing meant that they had to break up a marriage that had been, you know, seemingly from the weeping husband, a marriage of love, a marriage that was connected and bonded. So we see that Saul's daughter then is returned to David, but it's definitely not some sort of romantic gesture here. This is just brutal. We also see with Abner, like, he sends the husband back in part, go return, and he returned. You know, that kind of like a husband following his wife, usually you'd say, I'll die for my wife. I'm going to go anywhere. I'll do anything. So there's, we can assume that Abner says this in such a way that he's, it's kind of no nonsense. You need to get out of here. Because uh, what we're doing is we're ending a civil war. They didn't really have like paper truces, right? So they didn't have like a, a meeting like the Gettysburg or the where they're signing papers of ending the war. This is kind of how they end the war. They take property and return it to rightful owners. So now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel saying, in times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord spoken of David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. Abner knows the word. He's even quoting something that God said here. Like he knows that this was how it was supposed to go. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. We're going to end this civil war. Abner has laid it out to the elders of the tribes of Israel. Remember, Judah's already um, made David their king. So he's talking to the other 11 tribes. Uh, and in verse 18, I just like the phrase, now then do it. You know what the right thing is to do, so do it. And we see that um, becomes a biblical theme. If you know what is good and right, you're supposed to actually do what's good and right. So they're basically saying, we all know what God said, so let's actually just do what God said and make this happen. So Abner's contribution to the unity of Israel is kind of amazing, really significant. He's the one that makes the peace and makes all that happen. Um, so the Lord has spoken to David. Um, there's widespread understanding of what's going on here. Verse 20, so Abner and 20 men came with him to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So Abner, so David sent Abner away, and he went in peace in Hebron. So Abner shows up and says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep working these elders. We're going to get the kingdom united, and you're going to be king, and you can take over whatever territory you want to. I'll follow you. So Abner, who has been kind of acting king in the north, really just lays his crown down and says, you can have it. He does some things in wisdom. And one is that he meets in Hebron, and we should know something about Hebron. Hebron in, in Joshua 20, verse 7, is one of the cities of refuge. Remember those cities of refuge? You can't kill people there, right? It's like holy ground, neutral territory. So uh, Abner's, you know, not a fool. And when he comes to David at Hebron, David's giving him a neutral location where he can feel safe. So this is part of... You're reading through the law and you're like, why does God make these cities a refuge? What's he doing? 
God knew way ahead of time that we needed cities of refuge in order to make peace or the blood feuds just go on forever and ever and ever and ever and the battles never end. So for there to be peacemaking, there has to be locations where peace can be made. So this is neutral ground. God set this up way back in Joshua so that they could have a place where they could make peace. Almost like God knew what was going to happen. David makes a feast. This is what peacemakers do. They act like peacemakers. You might be my enemy. You might have been chasing me for years and made my life miserable. David literally lived in caves because of this man. And he throws him a feast and a banquet. Welcome to the best that I have. You can have it. This shows David as a king. He's, all, he's not just a warrior and willing to fight when he has to. He's also a peacemaker and he's diplomatic. He's graceful. He allows the saving of face. Because if he went to Abner and asked for his wife, think of what that does for um, the pride of Ishbosheth. By going straight to Ishbosheth, he helps Ishbosheth save face. I'm going to go along with the pretense that you're a king and I'm going to let you do a kingly thing by returning my wife. And by doing that through Ishbosheth instead of Abner, he's using wisdom. He's making peace. They're going to gather all Israel. That sounds enthusiastic. Let's do that. Um, for Abner, he's doing, back in the verses 9 and 10, Abner's doing this to show Ishbosheth who's the boss. Right? So I'm going to show you. But David's doing this because he wants a united kingdom where they're not killing each other anymore. And Abner says, all that your heart desires. If he really knew David, he'd know that David's heart is after the Lord God Almighty. He wants what God wants. So he should have said all that the Lord desires. But Abner's not there quite yet. Um, what God wants then is this situation to be resolved. So David sent Abner away, sends him in peace. Kind of a good ending. It'd be really nice if the chapter just ended right there. That's not what happens next. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. So the popular people in the camp are the people that bring the spoils back. So Joab being the head of the raiding party that goes out, this is how you feed the army. Like he's got some position too. Joab is David's uncle, um, kind of a counterpart to Abner. But Abner was not with David in Hebron for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the people that were with him had come, they told Joab saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he sent him away and he's gone in peace. They just made peace, Joab. Joab's not happy with this situation. Verse 24. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? First of all, think of, the, think of the guts Joab has to walk up to his king and say something like that. What have you done? Right? So Joab maybe thinks he's in charge, just like Abner was really in charge up north. He's going to find that's not the case. What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away? And he's already gone. Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you. You have to know that, right, David? to know you're going out and you're coming in. He wants to see your camp. He wants to know how you operate so he can attack you, to know all that you're doing. So hmm. the writer tells us a little different reason of why David went off, let him go in peace. It's because they're going to end the civil war. Um, so when he says, surely you realize this, David and jo Joab have a bit of a division here within David's camp. So his, his general has is, is got issue with how he's running the kingdom. Joab then isn't trusting David's judgment. He's actually challenging David's judgment. In doing that, I just want to argue on behalf of Joab, because we want to see both sides of this, Joab's actually right. If we go back to the law, if someone is unjustly killed, murdered, the family member, closest family member that's able, becomes the avenger of that murder. 
and the avenger of blood is supposed to end that by killing the murderer. So we know from a couple chapters ago that Abner killed Joab's brother, making Joab the avenger of blood. And he's like, you had him here and then you let him go in peace? Like, I want to finish that story, David. And if you're making peace with Abner, I'm not going to be able to get my vengeance. Right? So Joab has not given his vengeance to the king. He's not, he's not handed that over. He wants his right to do that. Um, he calls Abner a deceiver. That's what he says out loud. Um, but we know from what's going to happen next that he really just wants to kill Abner. That's the goal here. So he might even be worried about Abner taking his job because Abner may be the more veteran general, maybe, I don't know. Um, so he's been face-to-face -face with Abner and it didn't go well when that happened. Verse 26. When Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sarah. But David did not know. That's an important sentence. The writer wants us to know that Joab's doing this in David's name, but David's unaware of this. Oh, you got to come back. One more thing. We forgot something. Come on back. Now, when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside, it's important, in the gate to speak with him privately, and there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashahel, his brother. So we're told by the writer that he killed him to avenge his brother. It's important that he did it in the gate because Hebron being a city of refuge, Joab, under the law, can't kill him when he's inside the city. He had to get him in that gate. So as soon as he lured him into the gate area, it was legal. So Joab's actually trying to follow the law here. He's to the letter of the law, the justice of the law. He's avenging the murderer of his brother. What's curious here is that he bothers with the whole idea of stepping outside the gate. Like You see that Joab wants to follow the law like he's been taught to do that. Um, but in this case, David was willing to make peace with him and just let it go. There's nothing in the law that says an avenger has to seek vengeance. It's just that they can seek vengeance. So when God says, let vengeance be mine, saith the Lord, we don't have to seek vengeance when, we're, when something's, somebody's wronged us. We can let it go. And as David made peace with Abner, and he wants his men to do the same, Joab could have and, and had every ability under the law to let it go. He chose not to. He chose vengeance. So there's no courts. There's no police. There's no just way to end this situation. Joab's doing exactly what he has every right to do under the law, but David didn't know it. And he doesn't understand that he's playing this game. So what Joab thinks is good because it's lawful is not good because his king already gave mercy to that person. Spiritually speaking, as a typology of the Christian faith, we have to really be aware of that this is God's heart. Just because we do something that's okay because the law says it's okay doesn't necessarily mean that's the right thing to do. Sometimes we do things that are above and beyond the law because it's something God's heart would have us do, right? So Jesus knows what we do and when we do things. And when we're disobedient to what Jesus commanded us, that disobedience doesn't just disgrace us, it disgraces the king that we say we follow. So when Joab does this, he doesn't just disgrace himself, he disgraces David because David's word appears to have just been broken, right? David's peace doesn't mean anything. So when we're servants of a king and then we disobey the king's orders, it, it really reflects on our king because they don't seem to have any control over us. So it's not really a kingship, right? Does that make sense? 
loose cannons do not help ships float, right? It works quite the opposite. So afterwards, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner and his son of Ner. Like David's thinking, I gave this guy peace. And I gave him mercy. Let, his, let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. Let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge. <laughs> like if you're going to curse somebody, this is a cruel one. Like, let you always have somebody with a discharge or is a leper or who leans on his staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. Starvation, disease, and war. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Eshahel at Gibeon in the battle. Abishai gets added in here. We don't know how or what happened. Maybe Abishai was the one that sent the message or something like that. But David quickly, like this is a brand new kingdom. This is a baby kingdom. This is an infant kingdom. And somebody just decided to align with it and then they get murdered. This could destroy everything. So we're talking about a really fragile, brand new kingdom of Israel. And David is very quickly separates himself from Joab because he wants to keep the peace and he wants that peace to stick. How is he ever going to win over more tribes when everybody who comes has to worry about getting killed? Like, this is not how to do this. So there's a moral example that David's trying to set. He's setting trust in these alliances. And we get this image of the law offering judgment and death, Joab doing his thing. But we get an image of the king offering mercy and peace because he has the authority to do so. Why do we need Jesus? Because he has the authority to offer peace and salvation. Nobody else has that. So the king's doing his job, and he's got this servant as a loose cannon. So David then does a series of things. It's one thing to just say, I didn't authorize that, but come on. Political leaders saying that they mean one thing, but actually doing something else behind that. Like, we recognize what that looks like, right? It's important that David doesn't just say it. He actually does this too. So then David said to Joab and to all the people who are with him, tear your clothes. Joab probably did not want to tear his clothes here, but he does it because the Unlike Abner and Ishbosheth, David's actually the king here. And Joab, by all implication, obeys this. There's no narrative of him disobeying this order. So he thinks he's doing the right thing. And David's like, you will tear your clothes and you will mourn Abner because we have a fragile nation we're setting up here. So he gives a command like where Ishbosheth is afraid of Abner. David gives a command and, and Joab notably does not resist that order. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn. You will mourn for Abner. This will happen. So we can assume they did all of that. And David starts to establish a kingdom that's not based on vengeance because vengeance goes on forever. It never ends. But, and, he, and he puts the Lord out in front, which is great how he does this. Before the Lord in verse 28. That's the first thing he calls on. We're going to have a kingdom that's before the Lord, that's is in the face of God. And David, verse 31, and David followed the coffin. Okay, the person who follows the coffin is the person who's the the head mourner. If a husband dies, it's usually the wife that follows the coffin. If a brother dies, it's it's the parent that follows the coffin, right? So by David taking that spot, he's showing everyone, I'm the chief mourner. I'm the one who feels the worst about this situation over anyone. Verse 32, so they buried Abner in Hebron, place of honor. Uh, the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And either David is an absolute actor here and just putting on a huge show or he sincerely mourns the death of Abner. And I think it's hard to fake 
grief. It's hard to fake this kind of crying. And all the people get to see this. And the king sang a lament over Abner. Now we're going to where he's intentional about his mourning. Right? He's not just singing he regrets this. He shows it to people. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not put in fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. And then all the people wept over him again. Huh. Like, David means it. This was horrible, folks. And he's showing the people what that looks like. He models for the people that we're going to have a godly kingdom. Verse 31 says, then David, and then dot, dot, dot. And then it says, all the people. Do you see that? David, then all the people. He follows the coffin, and then they buried. Verse 32, the king lifted the people, and, and then he wept, and then all the people wept. He does it, then the people do it. Verse 33, the king sang, and then the people weep again. So there's this reciprocal relationship with David. I mean, God's even using this situation to tie David to the people and make this connection between leader and people. He cries, they cry. He sings, they cry some more. Either he's a really bad singer or something touched their hearts. And they're just moved by it. Don't laugh at that, Grant. David was a good singer. He was a pro. He was a professional singer in the king's court. He must have been okay. King David is used here. And <laughs> this is so sweet how the Bible does this. This is the first time he's called King David. You would think in the Bible, if you're trying to puff up your heroes, he conquered the Philistines and then King David sat on his throne. It would be this big puffed up like right he finally united israel and he sits on the throne but that's not the introduction of that title the title comes with and king david followed the coffin the king shows up immediately after death right and, and just this the way that's slid in there king david and the first time we get to see that term there's a sadness that comes and a true king there's a true grief that comes because of death Death is something that, that, that kings should lead us past. We want kings that are strong because we don't want to be lost in battle or war. We want an eternal king that's strong because he's going to help us conquer sin and death. And that appeal for a godly king is there, right? You need an avenger rule or people just kill each other all willy-nilly. But you need mercy to stop the killing. And that's where we need a king to say we're done with this and we're going to end it. So the king shows up immediately after the coffin. I just think that's a great image of Jesus. King Jesus shows up immediately after the resurrection, right? And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, I see the temptation there. You want to just go on with feasting. David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased the people. Again, I... This sign of grief is to fast for a day at the funeral. And they're like, wow, we're going to have a big feast. We're going to just do this. And David's like, I'm not feasting. I'm not going to celebrate somebody's dead, even if it's my enemy. Because it was done in a wicked way. This wasn't done on a battlefield. That's kind of what his song is talking about. He didn't do it with his sword in his hand. He died like fools die, like people that aren't fighting for the Lord go down. So David's not afraid of Joab pretty clearly here, right? Strong admonishment against this behavior. Notice that he, he ends the killing and that he doesn't kill Joab and he would be right to do so. But he doesn't do that. And we have seen David execute people, right? But in this case, he's just going to end this um, without any kind of cynical behavior going on here. David shows people and models 
to value life, all life, even the life of our enemies. And then he prays for this peace. And the people take note of it, verse 36. They're watching how he behaves. This is not Saul. This King David we have, he's a different kind of character. Because he's not out to puff himself up like Saul was. They see David's honor, his mercy, his sincerity. The fact that he is strongest in his kingship when he's weak should not be lost on us as Christians. Right? It's the weak become strong because they see that in weakness we have boundaries. We have a code that we live by, right? So when Satan attacks, he fuels the rage and the murder of Joab. God shows that his people have a different kind of metal. They're stronger than that. We can suffer. We can be broken. We can wrestle with things. We can get upset. We can get depressed. We can get angst towards people. But God has built us of stronger stuff. We can also endure those things and tarry on. So in this morning, all the people take note of it and it pleased them. We have a king that doesn't want us to keep killing each other. Praise the Lord. And that Israel is born in this action. It's just beautiful how that works. King David. Verse 37, For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been in the king's heart, king's intent, to kill Abner, son of Ner. He successfully takes what could be an explosive situation and he, he manages it. Isn't this what kings do, right? Good kings, something bad happens, good kings deal with it. They don't make excuses. They don't blame people. He doesn't sit and chastise Joab and how he doesn't throw spears at people he's irritated with. He just handles the situation and he owns it. David owns it. And in doing that, it shows what his heart was. So he distances himself from the action, but draws himself into the emotion of the situation. So we get to see the character of David rise as king. Um, for all the people of Israel understood that day uh, that they had not been in the king's intent to kill Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today. Though anointed king, these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. This is just as powerful as the morning, right? He's not saying that what Joab has done is okay. He's already cursed Joab. But he's not going to kill Joab because the killing needs to stop. Their actions are too harsh for me. Joab's a man of war and so are his brothers. And that has served David very well as they've been rebels in the wilderness raiding Philistine towns. But when that anger and rage gets applied to our own people, that's not okay today. The word weak, in, in verse 39 it says, I'm weak today. The word in the Hebrew for weak is not like physically weak. It's the same word that gets used with new plants. When a new seed is planted and that first little sprout pops up, it's vulnerable. And so as David's building a brand new fresh kingdom, it's a vulnerable kingdom, right? So David's kingship is weak today. We're just starting this whole new thing and we're not firmly established yet. Our roots don't go deep yet. We don't have traditions. So that fresh plant is vulnerable, and so is this kingdom, um, and it, we need to be careful about it. So where Abner ruled Ish, Joab does not rule David. I think that's the main takeaway of this chapter, right? Joab is, is chastised, he's, he's brought about, and then that last piece, the Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his weakness. David loves Joab. We should know that. He's his general. 
but he's not afraid to say, what you just did, my friend, was evil. He calls it evil and wicked. And that's not like an easy thing to hear from your king. But what you did was wrong. And God does the same thing with us. Your choices, your life, your sins, they're not okay. They're wrong. But I still love you, and I want you to repent and come around from those things. So again, David kind of models this. Um, and he tells the whole people what's going to win favor and what won't. And then we get to chapter 4. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart. Um, the losing heart there is his hands, his hands were feeble is literally in the Hebrew. And all Israel was troubled. So there he is in verse 5 we'll see he's lying on a bed. Likely he's just kind of sick at heart. You ever felt that way? Just so overwhelmed you can barely move? And you, all you want to do is just lay in a bed and curl up in a little ball, pull the covers over you, and wait for the monsters to go away. That's Ishbosheth right now. He's lost his backbone, Abner. Abner got killed, so he can't even, like, in his head, he maybe he's thinking, I can't even quit this war because as soon as I do, David's just going to kill me. So even though David's men knows that Abner's death was bad, Ishbosheth doesn't know that. If Ishbosheth went to David and asked for forgiveness, I think David would have given it to him. But Ishbosheth doesn't know that at all. The, the downside of evil is that it usually hits other evil people. And Ishbosheth is a physical and emotional wreck right now. Uh, and he has lost heart. He just doesn't have any interest in ruling, which had to be hard for his, all those people close to him because we got a king that just quit his, he doesn't want his job anymore, right? And you can't really do that. Being a king is not like you're an employee of something. You can't just quit. But he does. He's lost heart. He's lost his hands. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of his troops. The name of one was Ba'ana, which means in affliction. <laughs> who would name their kid that? And then the name of the other was Rechab, which means rider. Um, and the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, of the children of Benjamin. So they're actually of Saul's tribe. They're, they're Benjaminites. For Beeroth was also part of Benjamin, because the Berethites fled from Gideon and have been sojourners there until this day. Uh, that little parenthetical add-in uh, is likely something that authors put in after the fact, which is why it's in parentheses in your Bible. So it got added in as a detail because people were getting confused because they would say sons of the Berethite, and they're like, well, wait, the Berethites aren't here, they're there, what is that? So we know from that that helps us date the book a little bit. This is not being written when it, that city was lost to the Philistines. This is being written when the Berethites had been rebrought into the kingdom, if that makes sense. So it says it was part of Benjamin. Usually, a lot of times in the Hebrew, we don't get past, present, future tense. On that particular passage, there's an emphasis it was part of Benjamin. So that helps us to date the book and when it was written. So if they're the tribe of Benjamin, and Abner just got killed, and Abner was of the tribe of Benjamin, these people could be avengers, right? Like legit people that could go and avenge the death of Abner, and that, that, that blood feud could keep going here. Um, so we get the last two descendants of Saul, uh, uh, Ishbosheth, and then the, the other son, which we'll get to here in a second, uh, Mephishbosheth, uh, and then we get these two captains. So you got four people that could still keep this civil war going if they wanted to. What happens with them? So we get the rest of the story. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse took him and fled. That means after seven years that this guy is now about 12 years old. So, but he's a threat to David's throne because he's a legit heir to Saul. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. 
and his name was Mephish Mephibosheth. That's a complex name that means exterminating idols. So idol killer is what it is. You kind of get the sense of what kind of guy Jonathan was, right? Only survivor of Saul's house then, right? So Mephish Bothesh is weak in two different ways. One, he's young, he's only 12 years old, but he's also weak physically. His, his legs don't work. So he, they, they didn't have like good surgeons that could reset bones the right way. So when a kid shatters their, um, uh, is it the tibia or that part of the leg? Like you, there's a chance you're never gonna walk again because they don't know how to reset the bones and medicine just wasn't that good. So you'd say that's such a horrible thing and this kid's probably had a tough life but the reality is he's going to make it through 2 Samuel chapter 4 because he's lame. So that curse, that apparent curse of not being able to walk is actually the thing that makes him not a threat to the throne of David. So it's going to help him to survive. And, and as we, and we get into chapter 9, he's actually going to be honored and given a place of honor in David's court. But the only reason he survives to chapter 9 is likely because of these two weaknesses, his youth and his inability to fight on a battlefield. So that is kind of a a weakness that's made into a blessing. Then the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, uh, Rechab and Baana, set out and they came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. So they come under false pretenses. And they stab him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escape. This is the Bible where you're just like, whoa, he's, this was a wild world these people lived in. It says they set out in the Hebrew, that's the word yalak. Uh, it has a strong implication or connotation. They set out like as an army would set out for war. So that kind of language, is they're going out because they want to make this decision. Um, and they just consume them. This is the problem when a king gets weak, then you get the sharks start, they smell blood in the water and they circle around. And Ishbosheth's not a king. And without Abner, there's no trust in his leadership. And the sharks circle and they get him. And that's, we may, you may have other things that you see there when we read through it, uh, but essentially they get there. They escape, verse 7, for when they came into the house, he was lying on the bed in his bedroom, and then they struck him and killed him. Uh, and then they beheaded him uh, and took his head. And they were, and were all night escaping through the plan. So 6 and 7 give us two different kind of takes on what happened. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth. This is just gory, right? The son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. You are in the clear, because we're two people of Benjamin, and we're not seeking vengeance, and actually, we actually killed Ishbosheth instead of seeking vengeance on Abner. So we want to show you that we're not going to fight your kingship. So they're trying to save their own life. They're switching sides just like Abner did. Abner came because he was angry at Ishbosheth. These two are coming because they want to get something out of it. Do you see the difference? They're both switching sides to David's kingdom, but they're coming for all the wrong reasons. One group's just doing it because they're mad at everybody else, the Church of the Discontent. These guys are doing it because they want to get some sort of reward, the Church of the Needy, right? They're just showing up because they want something. So they're thinking this act is going to endear them to the king. And we know about David, this isn't going to endear them to the king at all. Like, it's going to do the exact opposite. But what's in their head is they want something. It's like a trade in their head that they're, they've done something and they're going to get a reward. Like, their works are going to save them. So they come in and they use the right language. Lord has avenged my Lord. Both come crying into the room using the word Lord twice. 
You know, and it made me think of Matthew 7, 21. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall be entered into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So it's not about the works that we think will impress our king. It's about the works that the king has asked us to do, the will of our Father. And this isn't David's will. What he's done here, what, we've, what they've done here, they're going to get punished for. It says the Lord has avenged, uh, saying or implying that this is God's will, that what they did was God's hand in action. So this is where when we read the Old Testament histories, we have to understand that the writers often back off from judgment and just report the history. This is what they said, even though it's not accurate, even though we know it not to be true, um, that they're not acting in God's will, but they say it. <clears throat> Nothing's different today. There's still people that say they're doing things in the Lord's name, and they're not, because we know what the Word of God says. We know God's will because we've read his word. So when Saul doesn't actually kill any, uh, any of Jesse's descendants, then there's nothing to avenge here. This is actually against the law. Uh, Ishbosheth has not successfully done anything uh, to deserve this kind of treatment, this kind of murder. Um, so this behavior is really despicable. And the author just backs off and kind of just tells us what they said. Um, they are thinking that all of these things, that they're going to come before their king, and all these things they've done are going to impress that king so much. And this is what you would, this is actually the very definition of self-righteousness. They've defined righteousness for themselves. But our righteousness doesn't like work like that. Human-defined righteousness is not really necessarily a good thing. Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. When you're talking to, about an all-powerful and unpure God, when we define righteousness for ourselves, it's kind of like these, these guys walking in with a, a head in their hands, thinking that David's impressed by this. So here's how David responds, verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Baana's brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him, and I had him executed in Ziklag the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. So David kind of explains this to the two guys. Um, he puts the Lord out in front as the Lord lives. Boy, in, in, you're claiming that you're doing the Lord's vengeance. I'm claiming that as the Lord is a living God, uh, what you're doing here has already been judged. So David puts the Lord in front. He puts his name out in front of this judgment. We know that back in 1 Samuel 24, he made a vow to Saul and his descendants to Jonathan too that he would not harm those descendants. If, if it wasn't needed, if he's not being attacked, he's not going to go out and, and, and antagonize them. And he's keeping that vow here. He's actually going to honor um, uh, Ishbosheth, a, a descendant of Saul, um, because he has made a vow that he would. So he reminds them of his past behavior. He's judged once. He's going to do it again the same way. God says this the same thing to us. He says, remember what God has done, remember his works. So this is why we read the word, because when we see what God has done, because God is consistent and just and the same forevermore, we know that God will do consistently with what he has done. So David's kind of using that thing of saying, look, I've already had a situation like this and I've already judged it, so why are you thinking you're different? So how much more in verse 11, when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed, therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? Really implying like you didn't kill him on a battlefield. 
Like you killed him in his own bed. You know, even Saul was killed on a battlefield, right? And it was he was killed in a in a wicked way, and it wasn't in combat. Um, and David punishment. But how much more when you take somebody out in their own bed? They're not out hurting anyone. So David commanded his young men, and they executed him quick and fast, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them both hanged them by the pool in Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So when we come to the kingdom that God's establishing, we have to check our reasons. You know, Abner had frustration with the world. That's not a real good reason to join God's people. Like he's joining out of a anger with Ishbosheth. And David simply releases him and lets him go, and lets him go in peace. You know what? If you're here because you don't like somebody else, we don't need you here. You can head out. These guys come, and they come with their works, right? And they, they come for things they want to get because of those works. So they're, they're coming into God's kingdom looking for a better network, better group of friends. They're helping to advance their career, perhaps. And David actually executes them for this. Like, this is not only the wrong reason. We, he's not going to allow people like this into his kingdom. So he's, he carries out and executes the judgment of the law, uh, you know, in a civic situation, this isn't an issue of anger. Uh, this is an issue of, of, of defining that this was an uh, unrighteous kill, a murder that happened. It wasn't an accident. They admit that they did it on purpose. So David simply executes the law. And this is, you know, when you look at God's law, this is um, the death penalty. And, and they deal it out quick. There isn't a long wait. The, the trial is fast. Uh, the cutting off the hands and feet happens after the, the killing, so this isn't torture. Uh, the cutting off the hands of the feet is symbolic. You cut off the hands because it's those hands that did the murder, uh, and they're not going to get a proper burial. And the feet are the ones that ran with enthusiasm to tell people all about what they'd done. So the feet get cut off. So you have these kinds of pieces. They hang them by the pool in Hebron. The, the reason they do that is the pool is where everybody in town would go. And as David establishes his sprout, his weak kingdom, and it's just getting its roots in the earth, he has to remove them from the earth. You see that language in verse 11? Like, I can't have you here because we're trying to build a new kingdom. So he's establishing a clear standard under the law, and then by hanging them at the pool, he's telling everybody in town, we're going to live under this law. Now, in the Old Testament, the law says you can't hang someone up for more than a day. Right, So this is going to be a short-term kind of thing. It's not like he's, he's decorating his city or hanging him from the walls of Beersheba as a trophy. He's setting him here at, at a place of commerce and business, the well, the pool, so that people can see that this isn't how the kingdom's going to be operating. Right. So this, these, uh, these criminals that killed Ishbosheth, they were coming in looking to, to take from God's people. They're wolves. And... Uh, and it happens very publicly. David talks to him individually. He talks to his people. And then he, he brings the situation in hanging the body by the pool to make it a public discussion. This is why we had to remove these people. So the, the, the idea that we have this happening here at this stage in Israel's history really is this is how the Civil War ended. And it ended in, in, in David mourning one death and executing another as a civic leader. In both cases... David is unifying Israel under one king, one God, one king. One, and David takes all of this to build his kingdom. And we just see David rising as a king, doing the right things. We see, uh, we see his sin, some of his failings. 
Uh, it's, it's really clear that he shouldn't have married all these women. You look at Genesis, which is what Jesus pointed us to. God's intention is not to marry all these women. That's going to be a problem in David's kingdom. Uh, we know it's against the law. We, we looked at uh, the spots in the law where it clearly outlines uh, that, that a king is not supposed to add wives unto themselves. So we know from Deuteronomy that he's doing the wrong thing and, we, and he shouldn't be marrying women that aren't Jewish. We know that from Deuteronomy 7.3. So we see an honest portrayal of a new king doing some things right and as the law tells him to do it and some things wrong where he's breaking the law. And I want to point out with David, as, as a lot of the things David does establishing this new kingdom, the new kingdom becomes a typology of Jesus, but it's not going to be completely connected or completely aligned in that way because David's not perfect. He's a human. And I like that the histories share that with us. It feeds us, it tells us straight up uh, that what happens because it, it trusts that the reader will use their intelligence and they will sort this out. So uh, let's say a word of prayer and we'll wrap up. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it's honest. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you don't hide things um, so that we can discern and we can think and we can use our mind. Lord, help us to be accurate as we use our mind. Lord, help us to not come to your word with our agenda or our what we want it to say, but Lord, help us to just hear what it says uh, at face value, uh, that we're not composing or twisting or ringing out your word, Lord, for an agenda or a, a political viewpoint. Lord, we want to just hear your word for what you say. You're above politics. You're greater than the, the hot-button political issues of, of, of our time. Lord, you're an almighty God, and we want to see your will be done through all history. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.